Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Let's talk a little about horror jail. There's a huge chauvinism against the horror genre in every level of the film industry. They love the money that horror films earn, but they don't respect the films and the filmmakers themselves. Let me say right up front that I'm proud to be a part of our world in the dark arts and that I've carried its torch since I was a child. I think some of the best, most groundbreaking work in the world of cinema has been in the world of horror. Boundaries have been stretched, taboos broken, new technologies created in our dark little corner of the movie world. But though the studios believe that the genre is for teenagers, and that's who they make them for and sell them to, they also have been instrumental in digging deep into characterizations, into telling stories of adult fears and terrors. I've always said that horror is good for you and a hell of a lot cheaper than a therapist. Yes, there's a ton of junk in our genre, but the good stuff can be transcendent. I'm not going to bitch about the lack of respect we get. It's always been the case and probably always will be. And there will hopefully always be studios like A24 that realize horror can be for grown-ups too. The issue of horror jail, though, is a real one. More often than not, if a filmmaker has a success in the horror genre, then that is the only kind of material they offer him or her. So many of the players in the horror genre would love to play in another sandbox as well. George Romero, Toby Hooper, John Carpenter, and lots of contemporary filmmakers like Julia Decorneau, Andy Muschietti, Andre Overdahl, Mike Flanagan, and many others have filmic voices that could really translate to other genres, but it's unlikely they will get many chances to do it. As I said, I'm honored to have a career in horror, but it would be nice to step out and move outside of the comfort zone. I've had the occasional opportunity doing a legal thriller and fanciful TV shows like Once Upon a Time, but as much as I love the horror genre, I love lots of others as well, and it would be fun to flex those muscles too. Our guest has a lot of creative muscles to flex. He's a writer, director, actor, cinematographer, editor, and probably a good cook as well. Ty West's career is a prolific one, and his latest film, X, is a great example of horror that goes well beyond the teen audience. We'll talk with Ty and get some insight into his work after this. This episode of Postmortem with Mick Garris is sponsored by the new survival horror film Tethered from Gravitas Ventures. Miles from civilization, a blind teenager and the hunter he befriends are tormented by a mysterious creature lurking in the woods. Dread Central says a quiet place brought a silent horror where its characters could only walk a certain path to keep them safe. They also had a set of rules for survival. Now director Daniel Robinette is twisting this concept in his new film Tethered. Watch Tethered now in select theaters and on digital. Coming soon from Dread, Midnight. 
In midnight, fear grips South Korea as a serial killer, Squid Game's Wee Ha Joon, stalks its streets. When Kyung Mi, a deaf woman, stumbles upon someone bleeding out in a dark alley, she's become witness to one of the killer's brutal crimes. Now Kyung Mi is being ruthlessly hunted down. Will she survive, or is she doomed to become his next victim? Directed by Kwon Oh Seong, Midnight hits on demand and Blu-ray April 5th. Check it out. So first of all, Ty, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. And let's talk about teen people. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> so how did that come about? You were profiled in teen people at a very early age. That's true. Um, yeah, I was, I was at film school in New York City, and I was walking down the street with a friend of mine, and two people flagged us down, and they said, we're doing a little thing on, like, students, and, like, it was, I, don't, I guess it was a fashion thing. I don't know. Anyway, next thing you know, we said yes, and we were, like, in a trailer getting clothes put on us and taking photos, and they wrote a little blurb about it. So it's, uh, it, I, I have not thought about that in a very long time. <laughs> well, I'm happy to remind Although, you. if I go to my parents' house, I'm pretty sure the picture is, like, in a frame somewhere. <laughs> it's not oh, no. flattering. Well, tell me about that, uh, your upbringing in Wilmington, Delaware. Mm -hmm. uh, were your family uh, members, uh, your parents in the arts, um, were they big film fans? Where did your passion for cinema first bloom? Hard to say. Um, no, my, my parents are not in the arts. I'm from Wilmington, Delaware, which for a lot of people, like the Wayne's World joke of, hi, I'm in Delaware, is like not far off. Um, <laughs> it's kind of where you send your credit card bills, and that's pretty much all anyone knows about it. Um, <laughs> And so I think growing up, there wasn't really, the idea of making movies was very foreign and was not something that anybody particularly did. Um, and so I think the video store is probably for me what happened. I'm an only child, so I did a lot of stuff by myself. My parents both worked. So I spent a lot of time watching TV. I spent a lot of time like, you know, renting like five for five Fridays kind of yeah. thing. Um, and I think I just watched as much as I could. Why I loved it, I couldn't tell you. It's just one of those things that's so what happens. I mean, I could give you some... BS reason about like why horror but I, I'm not really sure I just liked it and I thought to be honest it was the section of the video store you weren't supposed to go in and that's kind of what led me there but I think like I, I want to say like I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark and I really liked that movie and that made me think about liking movies and then I just started watching everything after that. And so you had a full appetite of, of movies and, and renting them and mostly hanging out in the horror section. But what was it that made you feel like, you know, maybe I could actually do this? You went to the School of Visual Arts in New York. Um, how, tell me about how that transition happened to the kid from Wilmington to the film student in, in New York. I was very last minute. I um I, I didn't do great in school. I wasn't that interested. I'm like many people who said the same story of like if I'm interested in something, I can go all in, and if I'm not interested, I I can't. I like my brain refuses to learn it. So school, I was not that interested in. Um, I was in a band. I thought that would be a cool thing to do, which is like, you know, parents' worst nightmare. Maybe like maybe they didn't even know filmmaking was an option, so it would be second worst. But um, <laughs> yeah, I was just not paying attention, and then. I had my junior year in high school a film class, and the oh, teacher in, in high school in Delaware they had film classes. Yeah, so the school that I went to, uh, like some of the teachers in my high school also taught at the University of Delaware, and so one of the English teachers, his name's Dr. Chipman, maybe he'll hear this. Um, he taught a film class at my high school also. I was like, great, a class where we watch movies, piece of cake. Um, <laughs> obviously, it wasn't that. It was a it was a very sort of structured educational thing about like cinema and and, and 
craft and technique and the history of everything, which is something I knew nothing about. Um, but like, it was the first A I'd ever gotten in my life. Um, and it came very natural to me. And once wow. I started learning about, you know, everything from German expressionism to whatever, like Potemkin Odessa steps and how De Palma was doing that and what the black and white was doing in Psycho and all of these sort of things and double indemnity and, uh, you know, blind shadows on the wall, like things right. like that, that I wasn't like actively th intellectualizing. It just opened up a whole different way of thinking about movies to me. So the formalism of filmmaking became apparent to you in this class, things that you just took for granted and felt without understanding. Yes, which I think is what most people, you know, most people, I think, watch movies very passively, even if they're affected by them. It's not, you're not necessarily thinking about the craft per se. Sure. Um, I started thinking about the craft and then I thought, maybe that's something I could do, which seemed very far-fetched. Um, and then I would say the movies that was most inspirational once I thought that was probably Peter Jackson's Bad Taste. Oh, what um, a great movie. And I think that was because I had seen that movie mostly because it just had a middle finger on the cover of the VHS <laughs> box and it was really gross. But at some point when I became interested in movies, I was I saw that movie again and I realized he's in it. He made it. His friends are in it. They did it on the weekends. The camera's just probably on the back of his car. Like I could see how it was there. Whatever Raiders of the Lost Ark was doing, I have no concept of how someone did that. Right. I, know, so I had no, no idea of like how to even enter a world in which something like that could get made. But like somehow Bad Taste was like, oh, okay. And I would say maybe Evil Dead was similar where it was mm -hmm. like, well, I could find a cabin. You know, and that's <laughs> if that's the starting point, okay. Um, and so then I made a little short film which got me into school. And then I went to film school in New York City and School of Visual Arts. And my first year there... I met, I'm getting a little ahead, but I met um, a teacher named Kelly Reichardt, who now is a very lauded filmmaker, and at the time right. had made one film. And it was produced and starred a guy named Larry Fessenden. Uh, yeah. I had seen his movie that had just come out and won a Spirit Award called Habit. and um, Which he starred in as well. Correct. And so um, she introduced me to him, and that was the snowball that started rolling. Interesting. Well, you mentioned being in a band, and I find that that's common with so many filmmakers, including myself. Back in the 70s, I was a singer in a band. But why do you think people from bands are also drawn to filmmaking? I don't know. I think it's probably a creative outlet. You know, mm -hmm. I think there's something about, yeah, feeling like you have to express yourself in some kind of like rock and rollish kind of way. I mean, uh, whatever the genre of the band is or the movie, there's something, I, I use that term loosely, like rock and roll about being a, a movie maker or being in a band or something like that. And that seems pretty exciting, especially if you're from, you know, Wilmington's a, a nice place, but it's, yeah. you know, it's a little boring. Yeah. Uh, and when well, you're 16, it's very boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What kind of music? It was like punk rock music. Punk rock. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, Not uncommon either. So many people relate punk rock and metal to horror as being transgressive forms and musically and cinematically they seem to hold hands i think that's true i also think there's a specifically with like punk rock music there's like a diy aspect to it yeah and um for me and my attachment to say the bad taste or something like that or evil dead or doing everything myself as an only child like this idea of like you know when we were in the band we made our own shirts and had the screen printers of the whole thing and so it was very well you can just do it yourself it will be hard Yep. And you might not be good at it, but you can do it. So right. that that was to me the, like, it's up to you if you want to do it, um, but you can do it. And now more than ever before with the tools being at 
everybody's fingertips. It's a totally different world now. I mean, at that time, and this seems ancient, but it's not that really. But like when I started doing it, you know, yeah, you could go get a Hi8 camera or something like that. But like when I started making movies, certainly when I went to school, it was still like Bolexes and Arieses and cutting on Steambacks and all the stuff like that. So I learned everything like that way. You know, Old so, school. Yeah. So even though I still edit my movies now and I've obviously used Avid um, for all of them, my brain still thinks about cutting the film and taping it back together. So I have a very linear mindset in that regard. Well, tell me about film school and how, uh, what the effect it had on, on you. In addition to the educational aspects of film history, you're also out there doing it for real. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the benefits of SVA is they put a camera in your hand pretty early. Um, you know, you do have to take a certain amount of liberal arts classes, but they were, the production classes were like, here's a Bolex. If you want to go buy a daylight spool and take it to pack labs, they'll develop it for you. You can start making stuff. So you did learn by actively doing it, which was great. Um, a lot of schools, you delays when you can actually start making things. And that was a credit to SBA for just, you know, throwing you into the fire. Um, but I also think film school, I had a good experience, but in general, it's what you make of it. Right. Because, you know, you go to film school and there are people there that really want a passion about making movies and are going to do whatever it takes to make movies. And there's people there that, for one reason or another, picked film school, and they're going to only try so hard, and, you know, yeah, fair enough. I actually taught, I was a guest instructor at a couple of film school classes, and you could tell there were kids there because, I want to try film, daddy's going to pay for it, mm -hmm. and and then there were the three in the class that these guys are going to do it. Yeah, so like any sort of, for lack of a better term, art school, like you're going to run into that. Um but fine, I don't, you know, good, whatever they're doing, good, good for them. But like, I think for me, I was 18 in New York City. I had no backup plan. I don't think anyone had any sense that I was going to then go on to like actually make movies. It was just like, <laughs> well, there's no better option. And I was very, I was self-aware enough to know that like, I have to figure this out because the alternative um, was not that exciting. It was like, there was nothing wrong with it, but it was like, I worked at restaurants, I worked at video stores, I worked at retail stores, and I had no, I have no qualifications to do anything other than that, like be a busboy or direct movies. <laughs> like I've never even worked on a movie. I've never PA'd, I've never done anything. Yeah, but you've acted in other people's movies? Sort of, yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll put yes, quotation Yes, I, I see what you're saying. I see where you're going yeah. with that, but that's a generous way of putting it, but yes. Well, but you have, and and you've done it well, you know, in your next and things like that, you know. It's... I appreciate that. Well, yeah, Adam, uh, we had known each other for several years, so um, in sort of playing a cartoonish version of myself, I suppose, was in my skill set. And I did the same thing in Joe Swanberg's movie, Drinking Buddies. Um, but well, I... you and Joe seem to work together a lot. Yes. Um, in 2005, my first film, The Roost, was at South by Southwest. And I, uh, Joe Swanberg and David Lowry both had movies there. And we really hit it off. Um, and we've stayed very close ever since because we were all very young. We all made movies for very little money. We were all sort of amazed that we were there. Yeah. And then each... I remember going back in 2006 just to hang out at South by because it was such a good experience to be around a film festival. And Joe had another movie there. And I was like... I was so shocked and also so driven by it because I was like, oh my God, I've wasted the last year. He went and made another movie. So um, <laughs> Joe is a really great person, especially then to be around because he made so many movies that it was always very motivational to, to keep doing things. Right. The DIY mindset of independent filmmaking, particularly in that era, 
was really strong and it seems to have created a community the the horror genre community of f young filmmakers in particular in southern california seems so strong and robust and filled with mutual support which you rarely see in other genres it seems to me it's true it is a it is a great benefit of it i mean i think what may have seemed at the time like uh like like anything uh we came late it was so much cooler before um at least as of now i i do feel like until something else comes along and proves me wrong like the people who are around my age-ish and making movies around the same time was i don't want to say the last but it was like one of the most notably last like things where you're like oh there's something going on like for instance in A 2005 yeah. yeah there was like people making movies for 5000 bucks because who cares you know right. they're just doing it anyway they don't care whether you buy it see it uh distribute it whatever they're going to find a way and so everyone was making them just to do it um i think that's less common in all things now but particularly with movies and i also think that was before social media was as um there wasn't as much video on social media then. So right. we weren't inundated with like video Instagrams or video TikToks and Vines and all these YouTube and all these things. So it, um, it was kind of like the last era of like, you could just make something. Now I feel like you can do that and people do that on a large scale, but it's 15 seconds long or it's right. on YouTube and things like that. So it, there was like a fork in the road and it went away from being like an indie filmmaker into be like, I, I suppose what is called a content creator. A content creator, exactly. Well, one of the the main reason I put together the Masters of Horror dinners, which you've come to a couple of those, they're great, is to be able to share the experience. You know, it's just a bunch of people who have the same job, mm -hmm. and the, that same job has myriad faces, but um, it's a bunch of people who who understand each other and. I learn from everybody there, and it's generational. There, there are people from thirty to seventy-five there, mm -hmm. you know, and and everybody just has the same language of movies that they speak, and it's kind of an exciting thing to sit around with thirty filmmakers who specialize in a particular genre and trade stories. It's great. I mean, I'm very happy that you do it. I'm very grateful to have been included because um, I have good experiences from going to that, and also I'm always I don't want to say amazed, but like, because it sounds negative in a way, but like, I'm always so happy how many people show up. Yeah. Like, you know, it's hard to get anyone to do anything. <laughs> and so <laughs> you send out an sure. email and I'm like, cool, this yeah. Masters of Horror dinner, I'm going to go. But the turnout is is very, very impressive in the sense that multiple generations of filmmakers are there almost every single time I've been there and are like very happy to be there. So that's a testament to you. And, and it's, it's great well, every time well, you have one. You know, one of the people I, I want to talk about in particular is Toby, who's no longer with us. He came to almost all of them. Is that where you met him or do you met him? I, I met him once there, but that's about it. I mean, it was in yeah. kind of a hello. So I, I would not say that I knew him in any capacity. But am I right in saying that he's a huge influence in you? Because we'll talk about X and how that seems to be very much a Toby Hooper film in the hands of Ty West. You made it your own, but certainly inspired by Toby's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. In a way, yes. I mean, I, I can't say no, because Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not only a masterpiece and one of like the great films of all time, as far as horror films, as far as slasher films, it, you know, you could argue whether it's number one or two or whatever. Right. But you can't argue where it sits in sort of its like um, capacity. And so... It was always looming over the movie. I suppose if I had set X in a summer camp, it would be mm -hmm. loomed over by Friday the 13th. It didn't right. make sense to be in a summer camp. But once you put it in Texas, I knew... I had my own reasons for putting it in Texas, but at the same time, I was like, okay, 
there's no way around this. There's no way to avoid the meaning of that movie and what's like looming over the movie. So I'm just going to embrace it and I'm going to just hopefully have people expect it to be like that movie and then, and then it changes and then, course and then change course. <laughs> so, cause I always felt like, okay, it's going to be a bunch of people going to a place. It's going to be a farm. It's Texas. They're in a van. It is what it is. Everyone's right. going to, so great. So think it's Texas chainsaw. And it even stylistically looks like it. Did you shoot it on film or no, is normally we would have, um, because of the nature of shooting in New Zealand, um, it oh, was, that's where it shot. Yeah. I didn't realize because that. there's a whole thing with COVID and we can talk about all of it, but, um, right. There was no lab in New Zealand, and especially with COVID, the possibility of shipping 35 and 16 outside of the country, maybe Australia, probably something like Thailand, in right. the midst of the, it was beyond whatever. So no, we did not. Right. We spent a tremendous amount of effort to fool you into thinking so, but um, <laughs> but no, we did not. Well, it worked on me. Okay, good. <laughs> so and it I'm has a been everyone human. thinks so. So I'm yeah. spoiling it now, but which is great. Yeah. But but uh, let's talk about X. We'll get into the earlier stuff sure. uh, afterwards, but. Tell me about how it was conceived and how you would describe it. It has come out. We're talking two days before the release of the film or Mm -hmm. the premiere of the film. But by the time this is out in a couple of weeks, people will have seen it. So if you want to give a spoiler or two, it's okay. But uh, how would you describe what you were putting together and how you went about it? Well, you know, I had made seven horror movies in a row. I'm very happy to have done so. and then I stopped for a little while because, and it was interesting, I was listening to your monologue in the beginning and I was thinking about it a little bit, but um, having made seven in a row, I was, didn't want to like repeat myself. I didn't want to start making a scene I knew how to do just because I knew how to do it. You know, I think having made enough movies, I have a general idea of how to like, how and when to scare and things to work, technically speaking, but that becomes boring once you know how to do it, you yeah. know? And so... I didn't want to repeat myself, so I said I'd stop doing that for a while. I went and made In the Valley of Violence, and then I got Which an Which is opportun- a Western. It is a Western. And I got an opportunity after that to direct a television show. And for the 15-plus years of my career prior to that, no one had ever offered me anything in my life. Oh, so yeah. when someone said, do you want to be... I was like, yes. Like, all I've ever wanted is for someone to say, come do something. So because, you know, to make a movie, for me, I have to think of an idea. I have to write the script. I have to go like pitch it to people, somehow get the money, that falls through. I have to do all that again, not get as much as we really need, somehow pull the movie off, get the movie done, get it out, get people to see it in, you know, against competition that is humongously outweighing us in their campaigns and whatnot. And then when it's over, start at zero again. The TV show was Can You Be on a Plane on Monday? Yeah. And you're directing. And so, isn't that amazing? <laughs> it is great. So, um, and I had no, as much as I'm a very writer, director, editor, very particular kind of person with my own films, I, I don't have that feeling about doing television. So for me, I was excited to be there because I wanted to hear from the creator or the showrunner because I would see them and they were super stressed because, you know, they're carrying the weight of this whole series. And I was like, oh my God, I'm you. Like, that's what I look like in my other life. And this is profound to see it up close. Yeah, you're um, a guest. They have all the responsibility. Yeah. And you're in for a couple of weeks and gone. Yeah. So I am just like, well, what do you want this show to be like? Like, maybe I can help you with that. Because that to me seems very appealing. And um, Was Scream the first one? Um, I did a show before that called South of Hell. Scream was the second one. Okay. And then I did a show called Wayward Pines. And then it, it started right, going right, pretty fast I, after that. And I, I lucked out. I got a very good script on the on the episode of Wayward Pines that I had. Um and so, yeah, I'm very happy to be there and I'm happy to be like, what is this? What do you want this to feel like? Okay, I got it. 
let me do that and hopefully make it better than you think. Maybe I can save you a couple hot costs because I've been making movies my whole life by myself. So production is not intimidating to me. So the idea of TV being like, there's no time and no money. Uh. For me, it wasn't so bad. I was like, <laughs> we got, there's a techno crane over there. We're doing fine. Right. So, um, so I think I just took to it well. And I, because my interest was to help the show, not myself, I did 17 episodes in like four years. So it was like, I did like six a year. It was like one after another. Exorcist was an interesting yeah. television experience for you, I assume. It was. Because it's, it's not the movie, but it's something really fascinating and, and very cinematic the way that show is produced. I agree. It was a good, that was a very good experience. And I, I liked, um, I've worked with that whole crew of people on a few different Fox shows. So um, it was cool. It was very cool to be a part of that, even though, yes, it's not the movie, but to be a part of it in an ancillary way was um, really fun and the cast was great and I got a good script for that one too. So like, it was very visual to your point. So for me, I come to movies visually. So if I'm going to do a TV show, I'm always trying to find a way not to just make a series of medium shots and go home. You know? right. So <laughs> yeah. I'm always trying Master to like, close up yeah, yeah, I'm always trying to get some craft in there. But also for me, doing all those TV shows, that's a lot of, and you know this better than anyone, but like that's a lot of reps on set. So each one of those is an hour long. That's like making a movie. Yeah, I did so many of those in such a short period of time that when it came time that I was going to make X, I felt very sharp from a like production craft standpoint. What was it you wanted to do with X? Well, I started thinking a lot about what I liked about movies at all when I was making television shows because I was... They weren't my shows, so I was thinking about craft and, you know, uh, I could be better at doing this with the camera and I could be better at doing certain things. And as I got better, I thought about what is it that I really like about movies and what do I feel is missing from movies now that makes me even want to make a movie? And for me, it was like the craft of, and this is like semantics, but cinema in the sense that like, it's very rare that I go to a movie and I'm like, how did they do that? Well, that's really interesting that they did that. Like, I go to a movie and it's good, or I go to the movie and it's not good, or the story's interesting or the acting's good, but it's very rare that I'm like, whoa, how do they cut that? That's interesting. You know, I was talking to someone earlier today about uh, West Side Story, the Spielberg movie. Oh, yeah. And um, I had no particular interest in anyone making a remake of West Side Story. Mm -hmm. Wasn't particularly interested in Spielberg doing such a thing. But anyway, I watched it. Why not? And the level of camera direction and blocking in that movie is astounding it is is astounding it blew me away and i don't know how many people appreciate that i know you appreciate that yeah i appreciate that and i use that as an example because it's a way outside of the horror box thing but if you look at spielberg's version of west side story i don't know how many if anyone else could it's so hard to do what he did (laughs) and like i don't know how old he is but like he's not being lazy because that is incredibly difficult he's 75 i mean it's remarkable like yeah it's very rare that I go like, and this is not to say that I'm putting myself on a pedestal of things, but I just, I do technically know how movies are made. So yeah. when I look at it, I'm like, whoa, that shot was so hard, <laughs> followed by 58 more of them, you know, <laughs> and then two more hours of it. And it's just like, it's astounding. And so I was thinking about like how much that is rare, not just in horror movies, but in anything. And maybe it was always rare, but it feels particularly rare to me now. And that there's a lack of cultural reverence for cinema like there once was, at least in my opinion. So I just started thinking about like, well, what would be an idea that would have that baked into it? And so I had an interest in making a horror movie. Again, it had been long enough. I never made a slasher movie. I felt horror movies were a little bit soft Mm -hmm. because, you know, horror got extremely successful in the mid-2000s. And the corporations came along and franchised and, it. Yeah. And, and more power to them. But 
you, when you make a four quadrant movie with stockholders in mind, you, you can't be as like edgy for lack of a worse term as say the movies in the video store when I grew up that I was scared to rent. And that's what I think of when I think of horror. And I think of horror and porno having like a symbiotic relationship of these like outsider, like, like slums of right. the movies. Transgressive. Your, yes. And, um, I, so I want to make a movie about people making a movie because I wanted to highlight the craft and I wanted to invite the audience to have like a window into the experience of making a movie so that maybe they would think about the movie I'm making in the context that I think about movies, which is like a filmmaking language context. So I was like, how do I do that? And I had this idea of them making a movie, but I didn't want to make a movie about people making a movie in Hollywood. It's uninteresting to me. I didn't want to make a movie about people making a horror movie. It was interesting to me. And then I thought, well, I've never made a slasher movie. The trope of sex and violence is a very like lowbrow thing that maybe with some craft, I could do something like a little higher brow with it. And that's kind of where the idea started from. And then I had sort of this, you know, the fear of aging that everybody has and the sort of what comes with that as the backbone of the theme of the movie. And, um, and so I just wrote it without telling anybody. And I, I've, I've had a relationship with A24 for a long time and we've always threatened to make a movie, but never did it. <laughs> and uh, I, here I am with a horror movie script and I sent it to him. I was like, look, this might be too much for you guys, but you know, think about it. And if you're up for it, maybe we could do this. And they called back and they were like, we want to do it. And um, then there was a pandemic and yeah. we had to figure out how to do it. Well, sexuality has long been missing from horror films, and it used to be a major part of it, particularly in the 70s era. Um, but it, it returns with a vengeance in your film X. Yeah. I mean, that's part of I, it, what I was saying. is like I was thinking, like, well, what haven't I seen in a while? You know, what, what are people not, what are not in movies, particularly horror movies now? And I was thinking about slasher movies because I'd never done it. And I was like, no one's made like a, you know, a really gory or a, a, a uh, like you know again to say sex and violence like that was the thing forever that was yeah. what built like exploitation movies and i was like well what if i could make an exploitation movie but hopefully pretentiously saying this but like bring a little bit higher level like production craft to it than say it just being the exploitable elements from one after another and like try to bring in a little bit of like what i think of as like traditional cinema to it and i was like that seems like an interesting challenge and worth two years of trauma to try to do it. <laughs> so you got the script, you got A24 on board, A24 being a particularly um, good home for adult horror, uh, maybe the only. Yeah. Um, but you said you had all the issues with the pandemic. You couldn't shoot in Texas as you'd like. Tell me what the machine was and what the thinking was, how that ball got rolling and you were able to shoot it. Well... And I agree with you, A24 may be the only ones. And they, I think if they didn't want to do the movie, I don't think, I think I would have just not made it. I think mm. that I would just add it to a pile of, well, now it's a pile of PDFs on my desktop. <laughs> but in theory, a pile of scripts on my <laughs> thing that didn't get made. Um, because it felt like the kind of movie that you can only make it with the right people. Because with this movie, and, and I can speak to this more about when we talk probably about the cast, but like, there's a movie, when you say it's a horror and porno, there's a movie that people are terrified that it could be that's in their head. And right. then there's the movie that X actually is. And that was the thing to navigate. And A24 understood what the movie actually was. So we were going to make it. This was like February of 2020. We're going to make it in the summer, Texas or Louisiana, something like that. And um, along comes COVID. And I wanted to make the movie in the summer. And it did not look like that was going to be realistic. 
So I was like, we're going to need to push the movie a year. I figured that's probably the end of that. Right. But A24 did not want to push the movie a year. So I flippantly said, well, then we have to go to the other hemisphere. And they said, okay. And so <laughs> we were like, oh. And so then we looked into New Zealand um, because New Zealand at the time had zero COVID. So right. it was a, a safe, realistic place to make the movie. But um, they let you in. Yes, if they would yeah. let us in. Um, and then Weta was there. And our, X was going to be heavily practical prosthetics like a lot and so they're world class you know and so that seemed like well they're probably busy but but they weren't and they loved the idea of the movie they loved the idea of doing the makeups they loved the idea of doing practical gore um the coincidence of the bad taste connection is not lost on me as i was thinking about going down there and um and so we said okay well maybe let's see if we can find a farm down there that looks like we're not going to but let's see if we can and then we did and so, so our winter is there, summer, exactly. so you were able to... Yeah, so while we had a window of, let's say, July, August, September in the States, down there, we had like January, February, March, April. Right. As, you know, not January and April aren't ideal, but generally speaking, we had that run. So we had time, if we found things, to prep and get down there. So, you know, Jacob Jackby, the producer, he just, like, he got motivated, he got wet on board, and... And we got down there and we did two weeks in quarantine. And then once we came out the other side, and this was like peak COVID. Once we came out the other side, they had zero cases. So you walked out of that wow. two-week quarantine and the entire time I was there was no masks, no nothing. It was just, wow. and you know, this movie, you could not really make social distanced. No, you know? and <laughs> so it's, it's pretty uh, intimate. Yes, and so, it, and it wouldn't have been worth doing it with, you know, I've worked under all of the COVID precautions and guidelines and it's hassle but it's fine but it wouldn't have been right for this movie because the enthusiasm and the energy of this movie i think needed to not have something like dreadful over it like that yeah. and so you know we were very fortunate to get to do that well tell me about the casting process because as you say it is horror dealing with horror and porno two things that are scary to a lot of actors so what was your process in that regard well we sent it out no shortage of people probably didn't read it and were probably <laughs> offended that we even sent it to them. When we got the list of people that would audition or would meet, um, the first question I asked everybody is, why the hell do you want to be in this movie? Um, because th that was what I was most interested in. Um, some people had good answers. Some people had not so good answers. Everyone that's in the movie had great answers. you know. And so most of them were all tied to some form of ambition that they had in what the role offered them. Like, um, as you say, spoilers, but like in Mia's case, I always wanted whoever's going to play Maxine to also play Pearl. That was always what I wanted to have happen. I didn't know if we'd be able to pull that off. She was the second person I met and I got off the phone with her, Zoom with her, and was just like, we're done. Um, and I had liked her work before. She got the movie 100%. And when I told her that I want her to play both roles and that's what I'm ultimately going, she had this like amazing sort of pause and I could see her like brain spinning. And she was just like, I could kill this. And I just believed her. Yeah. And so that's what I wanted out of that. And, you know, similar to speaking, Brittany Snow, she um, had had an opportunity in her past to do a, a pretty wild role that she ended up not doing. And it always kind of nagged her that, like, mm. that could have been something that she could have really been done, had a good time with and done something really she was really proud of. And she didn't. And so she kind of had this, like, this is a little bit of a chance for me to, like, get that one back. Right. And um, I was like charmed by that as well, because again, the, from the I can kill it to the I want to get that one back. Not only are those similar to the characters in the movie and their ambition, it just it made me think that like the people that are going to come down to New Zealand with me, like they they want to do this like as best they can. And that's what I was really hoping for. 
what is your process? Do you storyboard? Do you shot list? Um, how fluid is your set every day? It's not that fluid. Um, I Because I like write and direct and edit, I have a pretty specific plan of what I'm trying to do, and then I change it when it doesn't work. And often it doesn't work. But I do shot list. I don't storyboard because traditionally I've always operated the camera. Mm-hmm. So I'd mostly be drawing the pictures for myself. Um, right. I do story. I do these color coded shot lists, um, that are, I've done since film school, which are basically like what any shot list more or less would be like. I color code them based on which way the camera is facing. Uh, so if like, before we turn around, let's just get this stupid insert. I made it red so I wouldn't forget it. After doing so much TV and as many movies as I've done, the, I make that every night before and the AD's printed out and it rarely leaves my back pocket anymore. The only time it ever comes out is when we're in deep shit. Like right. if, if you see me over in the corner at lunch reading that, something has gone wrong and I'm <laughs> trying to figure out how to fix it. And it's great for that because it's a great way to do it. But to be honest, the process of making it is the most important thing because it forces me the night before to pre-visualize everything and to write it down and then it's kind of burnt into my mind. And then we go in there on the day and... I try to start the blocking rehearsals going in the way that I want them to go. And if it feels like I'm forcing it, I don't. And we do something different. Yeah. Every weekend I would shot list the the upcoming week Mm -hmm. and almost never look at that shot list the same way you're talking about. And some days I'll look at it and go, oh, I did everything on that shot list. And other days, there's not a single shot on this list that I did the way I intended. Yeah, I'm very adamant about nobody having it. Um, Like I let the AD who I work with, I'm like, you can have it, but don't give it to anyone else. Because if it slips out and it gets to script, people start thinking, well, we haven't got it. I was like, it's meaningless. None of this means anything. It's like, it only means something if I, at the moment, think that it should, which is why no one has, there's no reason for anyone to have it. But but I am very prepared in that regard, and I'm very, um, I think, precise in how I'm trying to do it. And like I said, I try to organize the first blocking rehearsal, being like, you start here, and I'm thinking you come into this, and I'm hoping that that idea works the way I think it would. It becomes very obvious when it doesn't, or if an actor's really struggling with it, then you just bail on it, and right. we start over, and we find a new way to do the scene. And an actor will often bring something to it that you don't expect. For sure. changes everything. Yeah. yeah, so I always be like, let's start here, because I think this is going to be good, and if you hate it, we'll fix it. Yeah. Now, about the post, well, about the shooting of it. It very much looks like it's shot on 16-millimeter film, even though it's digital. Digital doesn't look like 16 millimeter film usually. So how did you go about that to achieve that look that is similar to what Toby got with the original Texas Chainsaw? It's a pretty painstakingly esoteric process of um, we shot digitally. We used um, these mini hawk anamorphic lenses, which are like very, very sharp and the opposite of what you would think. For the 16 we used, I can't remember the lens at the moment, but it is a very old 16 millimeter um, zoom lens. It's not a very good lens. Um, it had all kinds of weird refractions in it and things. And it essentially it's out of focus is what it is. But like, um, <laughs> but, uh, so we used that for the 16 and we used the Hawk lenses for the, we'll call it 35 look. And then, um, on X, we didn't use any, no sky panels, no Kino flows, no, uh, stereo tubes, nothing like that. We only used like 2Ks, 10Ks, for now, like we only used old fixtures right. um, to just have hard light. So it was funny to see like a 23-year-old grip trying to figure out barn doors and putting up <laughs> scrims and stuff because it's been so long since people are doing that because yeah. everything now is like dimmer board. You know, right. we're cutting gels and putting them on the thing. So, yeah. um, and that helps because hard light is is something that you see less and less of now. And then in post, 
there was like kind of two LUTs that we made in the DI that was for the two looks. And they each had a certain level of very subtle level of defocus to it. So the whole movie would be like, you know, 2% out of focus or something, which it's not out of focus. It just softens the edges. So it's not quite as sharp. And then we had some 35 millimeter grain that we scanned and shot to have that. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was a hassle, but it was well <laughs> but it worth worked. it. Yeah, that, I mean, it was yeah. like anything else. It's sort of like you die and doing it, and then when you're done, it's the same thing like when you've killed someone in a movie, everyone thinks, oh, that must have been fun. No, it's the worst part of it because it's so <laughs> technical and tedious. And you're very happy when it's done and everybody's screaming, but you're like, man, like the tube was falling out and the blood because we did everything practical <laughs> as you should. Right. But, um, you know, when you're making that, you're just constantly looking at your watch and terrified that this isn't going to work. Well, you seem to be drawn to particular uh, decades that you like to replicate. Uh, in this, it's the 70s. In House of the Devil, it's the 80s. So tell me a little bit about approaching things in a cinematically historical context. Well, that is true. I think mostly I'm disinterested in the present because I'm disinterested in technology in movies. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll have an idea that's specific to that. If it's not specific to that, I have very little interest in watching screens on screens. Yeah. Um, and I'm not that interested in everyone being so connected because it does, as far as horror is concerned, it is a real enemy of suspense and things like that. Um, in this movie's case, it's the 70s for a couple of reasons. Narratively speaking, it is because Wayne is trying to make, you know, he's not involved in, in show business. He wants to make movies. He's seeing adult movies start to do well. He knows VHS is coming. He sees an opportunity. He's not wrong. They're going to make this movie independent little uh, porn movie. Um, that made sense to be in the 70s. Um, for me also, the seventies stylistically is probably one of the best, if not the best decades for American cinema. Um, it was a very sort of auteurish time for cinema. It was an experimental time for cinema. Mainstream movies were like very provocative and challenging and like respectful of the audiences and exploitation movies were like the complete opposite, but went all in, (laughs) you know? And so I think it's just a very, very rich time for cinema in America, maybe in the world, but it's particularly in America. And um, and then it's also like 1979 because that's the end of a decade and thematically with the movie, the changeover between two different time periods seemed appealing. So um, and yet I wanted to make a movie that was sort of set in the sort of milieu of of that Americana, you know, yeah, I'm making a porn, but I like Godard (laughs) kind of vibe. I think I think in many ways, as much as people will reference, say, something like Texas Chainsaw, um, equally as relevant would be something like Tulane Blacktop for me and my taste. Oh yeah, Monty Hellman. Yeah. yeah. That I saw that in the theater when it came out. I didn't realize they only test marketed it in two theaters. Okay. And I was in one of those and got to see it then. I love that film. I think in many ways I think it's a perfect film. Yeah. So going back to the well actually let's talk about House of the Devil a little bit because that kind of started a big buzz about your work. Mm-hmm. You had done a few films before The Roost was your first one. It was a festival uh, favorite. Um, and then you did a sequel to Cabin mm-hmm. Fever, and we'll talk about that as well. But tell me about House of the Devil and how that came to be and and deciding to make kind of an 80s horror movie. I had written House of the Devil right after The Roost and was, you know, we're going to go off and make that. And per my original story of you write a script and you try to get the money and the money falls apart, that is what happened. <laughs> and um, I went and made another movie called Trigger Man. And then that led to the Cabin Fever 2 situation or opportunity at the time. And then I had a tough time on that. And when that was ending, I um, was pretty much convinced I was doomed. And so, um, 
you know, the people who wanted to make House of the Devil call me, them, we have the money now. And I didn't really believe them, but they were telling the truth. And I wasn't, it was an old idea. I wasn't that excited about it anymore. But it was an opportunity. And I had a real sense of like, I better nail this. Um, because if I'm going to like write the course of things, even just for me personally, I need to, this movie's got to be the way I want it to be. And if it doesn't work, then that's the end. And at least I know I gave it my best. And so, um, so we went off and we made House of the Devil. And I was super particular about everything I wanted down to every little detail. And I don't think I was anyone's favorite person at the time. Cause it was just <laughs> like, I had a, in my mind, had a lot on my shoulders for it. And, um, I lucked out. It worked. Yeah. So who were your inspirations? What are the movies that inspired you or the filmmakers that really uh, inspire you to do what you do? I, I think anyone, so many, obviously, but I think um, for me, anytime you can see a movie and you know who the filmmaker is, that is the most like um, inspiring and meaningful to me. A cinematic that, voice. That's yeah. Obvious. You know, like if you see a Coen Brothers movie, it is 100% obvious who made the movie. And it's, it is something that other people can't do, you know, um, a Terry Gilliam movie. Like there's, I don't, I understand the lenses he's using, but for some reason it doesn't look the same when I do it. Like yeah. he just, it, it's different, you know? So any filmmaker where you're like, I can tell this is, has a, has a voice and has a stamp on it has always been the most interesting to me. So that's a bit of a, a broad answer, but that would be the general thing. And then from a specific inspiration thing, um, you know, I mean, Peter Jackson and Sam Raimi were ones that made me believe I could do it. Yeah. And so, um, that was, you know, they, they were, it, I'm very lucky to have been able to like, you know, seven billion people on planet Earth and have met both of them. It's so surreal. Yeah. Both great guys. Very great. Yeah. So you have done all independent movies. Your features are all independent films and you've done network television mm -hmm. as well. You haven't done a studio feature. Um, is it because they are so compromising or you haven't had the opportunity or what is your attitude towards studio feature films? Well, I mean, no one's really knocking on my door to do such a thing. Um, <laughs> I don't know. agents are for. Yeah, they're not knocking on their door either. <laughs> but um, I don't think, um, I'm not that interested in it. I'm, that's not to say that there wouldn't be something. Right. Um, I think it would just have to be a very particular opportunity because like TV is kind of great because I don't see it as my own and it, I'm very happy to go in there and help them do their thing right. for a movie to, to, to be able to shift my brain, to look at it that way. If it was some enormous thing that I didn't feel connected to, I probably could do it and do it well. But if it was something that like I cared about, I don't know that I could, I don't know that I'm the right, actually I do know I'm the wrong person <laughs> to, to have that many voices in the creative process. I'm just not, I'm not really, maybe at some point, I mean, I'm 41, things change. Right now, I'm more cut out for it than I used to be, but I'm still, the, I'm the wrong guy for the job. So sometimes I get brought in on things and I say, you know what, like, you know who would be great for this is this other person because right. I just have a sense that, and I've had only a couple, but more than I needed of bad experiences on movies and things like that. And um, it's, that's just, life's too short. Yeah. So well, let's talk about streaming versus theatrical. These days, an independent film almost always the only time you have an opportunity to see it on the big screen with an audience is at a festival. Mm -hmm. It's rarely in the neighborhood cinema. And most people consume their films digitally. So talk to me about the difference in experience because a lot of your films have their biggest audience in streaming. 
they've been available theatrically in a very small sense compared to the Marvel world. Mm -hmm. So tell me your observations about that and how you feel about that. Well, it's hard to really know how I feel about it. I mean, of course, as someone who you know, spends years working on movies and it's like, I didn't meticulously mix the movie for you to watch it on a laptop. You right. know, I could save myself a lot of trouble um, not seeing it in the theater. So of course, a big screen in the dark with lots of people. Um, we're going to premiere X or I guess as this is played, we've already premiered X with a big crowd. That's going to be a great way to see this movie, but not everyone's going to see it that way. And that's the reality of where we're at. Um, so, I mean, all you can really hope for at this point is that the people who are watching it at home, you know, TVs are certainly getting better. Yeah. They're getting bigger. I don't love a sound bar, but it's better than nothing, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so there's a little bit more appreciation of like, um, well, I guess it's accessibility of the quality because TVs mm -hmm. are just cheaper and things like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't, I mean, I'm not that old, but a lot's changed even in my time, you know? Okay. And so yeah. the way in which people look at movies you know, there used to be a, wow, people make this thing. And now it feels a little bit more like, when's the next thing coming out? I'm right, bored. Right. And that's a very different perspective. You know, that's very different from... They're feeding the maw. Yeah, yeah. It, there's a sort of expectation that it will continue to roll in. And they're not wrong. And I'm not saying there's anything bad about that. But it's different, for yeah. sure. And so... What is your home theater? I have like a 70... 70-inch TV and 5.1. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the the first time because The Roost was your first feature, your first time out, and it got big festival play. And so tell me about that experience. How old were you at the time? I was 22 when I made it. Yeah. And then it came out in, tw in 2005. I just turned 25 like the day before it came out. Um, you know, the, here's an odd anecdote to it is that I have a – me, Joe Swanberg, David Lowry have a running joke in our movies – um, we always name a character Dentler um, because at the time at South by Southwest, there was a guy named Matt Dentler and Matt Dentler was programming the festival and he accepted all of our movies. And if not, well, yeah, if you put a character with his name in it, he's certain. Well, there's before that. So like, <laughs> oh, okay. of course, so basically Matt Dentler started all of our careers. Now he'll say, no, I didn't do anything. Yeah. If he doesn't send it to South by, yeah. I'm working at the mall still for <laughs> sure, for sure. And so um, I've, owe Matt Dentler a lot and I tell him every time I see him and he hates it um, and we put him in movies so in X the sheriff's name is Sheriff Dentler um, so yeah I was just very fortunate that Matt liked the movie and even when I sent it to him I sent him to like a DVD and it didn't work which is the nightmare Ooh. you know and then he called me and was like it didn't work and I was like oh my god please send me another one because I liked what I saw he didn't have to do that you know so right. I'm incredibly grateful to that and that's where I met people and that like I said was the snowball rolling and um and that started that, you know, you meet one person, you meet another person, you get motivated by someone like Joe to make another movie and you just keep going. Well, The Innkeepers was a movie that's like a traditional ghost story, mm -hmm. horror movie, uh, seemingly inspired by The Shining a bit, which I know a little bit about, <laughs> having Indeed. done my version. So doing the Haunted Hotel ghost story, tell me how that started and, and what, uh, what was your motivation behind that? Really, that was kind of an ode to my sort of like retail life, because I had, uh -huh. you know, jobs where I would just sit at a desk all day, you know, or, you know, I worked at, I sold jeans, I worked at a shoe store and things like that. And, you know... To me, the sort of very like minimum wage job was what I knew and was charming. So I was interested. Well, more specifically, to be honest, when we made House of the Devil, we stayed in that hotel. Uh -huh. That's where we just the crew slept. And it was kind of, it's in theory, a haunted hotel. There was a guy at the front desk who had a ghost hunting website. So it was very rich with ideas. 
And I wrote that movie going, you know, we can make this movie for cheap because the place I wrote, it's done. The yeah. only production, it's, it's there. Yeah. And so um, it kind of came out of somewhat of a creative way to get a movie going. Like House of the Devil was doing okay. And I was like, this one's cheaper. So everyone was happy to green light that. Yeah. And we went back to the same place to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, of course, much like Texas Chainsaw with X, The Shining looms large when you're making a haunted hotel movie. Um, but really what I was thinking about is what it's like to be bored and not know what you want to do with your life and sort of that felt like an interesting way to add a almost Christmas Carol like haunted story around it. It just seemed like a, a different way to tell that story. Yeah. When we made the shining, we shot it in the hotel that uh, inspired King to write the book and people stayed in the hotel yeah. and all that stuff. And so we uh, did the same. It was like call time six. I'll see you in the lobby. Yeah. It's yeah. great. You get up and walk onto the set. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my favorite, maybe my favorite of your films is uh, The Sacrament. Okay. And that's something, it's not, it's a horror film, but not a supernatural horror film. It's horrific because it's real world. It's very much something kind of pulled from the headlines, the mm -hmm. the the original uh, Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about how that came about and, and what an amazing lead performance in that too. Because you're yes, talking about Jones a real is great. Cult. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Well, I... Um... I had made The Innkeepers. The Innkeepers is a really lighthearted ghost story. I mean, it has yeah. its dark moments, but it was funny and it was, you know, traditionally kind of cinematic. And I, I wanted to make something, you know, I was thinking a lot about horror and I was thinking about things that were scary and things that were violent and how there's a certain kind of like confronting realistic violence that is far less appealing than, let's say, some, you know, there's movies where people's heads get cut off and you cheer. Right. And there's movies where it has to get caught off and you're like very upset by it. Yeah. I had never made one of those movies. And I wanted to do something that was more confronting with the violence and made the violence like even for a horror fan to be like, it was, I didn't, it was a little much for me. Not because yeah. it's so gory, but just because the stakes of it were just a little bit more gnarly and Well, the intensity of the real world possibilities that we saw happen for, for real sure. uh, is really powerful. And the then movie. at the time, I was very interested in this sort of like new kind of media journalism that was starting where people would just thrust themselves into things. And, you know, having known a lot about what happened in Jonestown, it was like when the people went there and they were there and they had the film crew, it all went at that moment. And I was thinking like, that's ripe for something like that to happen again because of the way that like media is embedding itself so much. And I had, you in my 20s had gone through the Iraq war and everything was very like embedded journalism and they're right. we're taking you to the front lines and we're out here in the hurricane why I don't know I believe you it's raining you yeah. don't need to stand in the rain <laughs> but everything was being more closer and closer and closer to the action and I thought like man if you get too close to the action then the action might find you and that was kind of where the idea I had from it and I just thought like it was an interesting way to take a real news organization and a real story and sort of like fictionalize it in a way where yeah you know what it is but like it's just as relevant now as it as it was then and that was kind of where the idea came from and just to do something that was just like i guess in your face as far as what real world violence is and the journalism itself added to the story for sure in a really fascinating way did you do a lot of uh research on jonestown a decent amount but i've always been interested in things like that so i knew uh, the idea kind of came out of me knowing a lot about that um you know i think people don't know that much about it i think you know you hear well there's like the the zeitgeist phrase of drink the kool-aid you're like that's yeah. 900 people okay like yeah. it's a more morbid joke but um the uh i don't think people necessarily you know okay some people went somewhere and then they all 
killed themselves. And it's obviously a much more complicated and a much longer story than that. And if you really get into the story, you just like anything else, you see how it started as one thing, turned into something else, and you were trapped there and there was no getting out. And this is how things happen. And that always just seemed like, yeah, I can see how that happens on a small scale, on a large scale, or whatnot. What have you not done that you really want to do that you've not had the opportunity to do? Because you're able to work in the independent world. You don't seem to need to uh, lock into the franchise mentality. You're able to do self-contained works of your own imagination. What would you like to do that you've not had the opportunity to do yet? I would like to make my own trilogy. Ah. Um, your own franchise. Yes. Um, <laughs> in this sort of X universe, if you will. And I've actually already made the second movie. Wow. Yeah. So okay. we made two movies back to back in New Zealand. So you're doing your dream right now. I'm working on it. I yeah. got one more to go. You're two thirds of the way through. I'm almost there. Yeah. So um, we made a second movie called Pearl, which takes place in 1918, which is about Pearl when she's young and is also played by Mia Goth. That's great. And it's a very different kind of movie. Wow, I can't wait to see it. Well, Ty, thank you for spending some time with us. It's really great, and good luck with X. Uh, it's so much fun, and, and I really appreciate being able to sit and talk. I appreciate you having me. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.